Good to be back in this space. Um, and, uh, and as Jack said, um, it is still just a building where the church gathers and then scatters back to life Monday to Saturday in the places we have been planted, in the homes and the neighborhoods and the world we live in. Uh, one of our values around here is to be in the text on Sundays and then be in some type of community midweek to continue to grow. And so I am excited to be back in a text. We are charting the letter of James. And, um, and something interesting happening in my life, if you care, I am bacheloring it up this weekend. My wife is in California visiting family, and so I got three of the kids, um, three out of the four, and it was an adventure from Wednesday to Saturday to figure that out. Um, so you guys can continue to pray for me because I think I got about 24 hours left in that adventure. Um, and, uh, and we, as we get into James, oh, this is going to be an adventure. You guys are just going to click through it. First service, I made it about halfway through the slides before the clicker said it was done. So we're going to trust. You guys got to be on your game, tech team, as we go through it. Uh, but as you can see on the screen, we're taking uh, James. And some would see James as just a bunch of pro proverbs that are strewn together. Rather, there are four cohesive elements that we will walk through all under this banner of faith getting worked out in our everyday experience. And so the context we find ourselves in in James is from the book of Acts, where James the brother of Jesus finds himself as the primary or one of the primary leaders in the church in Jerusalem where these Jews have come to faith and they are living in Jerusalem and then there's this guy named Saul that begins persecuting Jews and so they begin making a decision for what they ought to do and there's a watershed moment that takes place at the persecution, at the martyring of a guy named Stephen. And here's where we find ourselves in Acts 7. And falling to his knees, Stephen cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. And so James is writing to a church, to Jewish Christians that have been scattered out beyond Jerusalem to encourage them in their journey with Jesus. And so now those who were scattered, what do you think they did as they, as they left Jerusalem? They preached the word. Now what were they preaching? They didn't have the New Testament. This is, James is probably one of the first letters written of the New Testament. They didn't have it. What were they preaching? Man, life with Jesus. Life with Jesus. And so here's our big idea for this morning coming out of James 1. Go back one, sorry. James says this as he starts his letter. James, a servant of God and of Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. And what I love about what James is going to do is he starts this letter. You read Peter, you read any of those other letters by Paul, they all have this lofty encouragement. Man, I'm so thankful for you. Oh, I love you guys so much. I, I, I just appreciate who you are. What does James do? 
from the get-go, he's going to have about 55 or 60 commands for us in his letter that takes about 16 minutes to read from beginning to end. He's going to have about 55 to 60 commands from the get-go of his letter. He just is out of the gate running and saying, this is what it looks like to live out your faith. Though you're scattered, here's what it looks like to live out your faith. He says, right at the beginning of his letter, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. James is writing this letter as a pastor to the scattered church, encouraging followers of Jesus in their journey of faith. Does that sound familiar for us? The way we view Sunday mornings around here is kind of like a staff meeting. The church gathers wherever you are in your spiritual journey. Those that follow Jesus gather on a Sunday, and then we go back out to our lives and our vocations and our families. And he encourages these followers not only to demonstrate that they have life in the kingdom, but also to recognize the gift of difficult circumstances, to see them as a gift and believe that there is joy in the midst of those that comes as a result of their faith. I don't know if you're excited. I cannot wait to get into James and feel pressed as he encourages us to live out our faith. So pray with me as we jump into this first section of James. God, you're so good. Thank you for who you are, your work in our lives, and the joy of being connected to you. Help us feel that and experience that a little bit more fully and take another step to grow in that reality. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen. Amen. So I learned this first service. So this wasn't, this wasn't a... Uh, a toolbox left over from construction. You guys ever showed up to a mechanic? You want to go to the next slide, Tim? You ever showed up to a mechanic, an auto mechanic, and then I had someone come up after me say, David, if you ever show up to an auto mechanic and they have a plumber's wrench, you're going to the wrong mechanic. I'm like, is is that what that thing is? It's a wrench, right? So anyway, Plumber's wrench, but auto mechanic. You ever show up to an auto mechanic because you have a check engine light and, and you're waiting for them to diagnose what is going on with your engine. And, and, and maybe you're the person that actually has to do the diagnostic, diagnostic test on your own from like Ace Hardware or some kind of auto mechanic store. You have to go buy your own thing so you can test it yourself because you don't trust the mechanics. I always feel like I'm going to get raked over the coals every time I walk into one of those auto parts stores. Anyway, check engine light comes on. What's it telling you? Yeah, something's up, right? We call it the idiot lights on your dashboard, right? It's telling you something's up. James is going to be giving us a diagnostic test on how to gauge where our faith is at. He's going to be charting this course as he begins the letter to give us a tool, a diagnostic thermometer to help us understand where our faith is at in this journey. And here's where he starts, and we're going to see it flow through this first section. Man, that light's going to drive you nuts, isn't it, Johnny? It's driving me nuts, and I'm not even sitting under it. Here's the flow in the beginning part of his letter. We are commanded to be happy. 
and we are commanded to be happy in the midst of difficult times. And we are commanded to be happy in the midst of, of difficult times. Why? Because we believe that those trials, those challenges actually develop our faith. And so as we start, I actually want to start with hearing from a story of life in the body that, that could maybe just begin this conversation of joy in suffering. So Jeff, Jill, will you guys come on up? <laughs> hey, Jill. Jill knows all about suffering. Get married to you, yes. She works for you oh. and she's married to me. <laughs> it's a rough life, Jill. It's a rough life. Sorry, I didn't say that. Joy in the service. midst of suffering. So, so why don't you give us a small uh, introduction of who you guys are? Yeah, hey, we're Jeff and Jill Rao. Uh, we've been around here for 16 years. We came from Idaho. And um, I've been the administrative assistant here at Hillcrest for about five of those years. Um, in that time, well, actually, we've got three adult children, I want to say, and um, they started their life journey with Jesus right here. Mm. And uh, yeah, so that's a pretty special place. Um, mm. We are built for community. And so, yeah, that's what we, what we love about this place, um, among many other roles that we've had over those 16 years, one of the things that we really love is, um, is leading life groups. And so um, if you've never been a part of one, a life group is just doing life together, being in community. Um, it's a small group of maybe about 8 to 14 people, and we get into the text this semester. Obviously, we're doing James, and, and we're going to see what God has to show us about... Um, joy and suffering, and so many other things, uh, we, we take care of one another, and uh, we get to know each other on a, on a deeper level. It's a pretty, pretty special thing. So as we jump into this conversation um, and this theme that's going to be throughout the letter of James, um, what's that experience been like for you, uh, either individually or in the context of, uh, of community? Uh, well, when David asked us to talk about kind of life groups and, and talk about joy and suffering, one, one story came to both of our minds right off the bat, and um, this is probably, I don't know, seven, eight, ten years ago, and um, we were in a, a life group. It was a grow group at that time, but it was a, it's a, we call them life groups now, and, and um, there was a couple in our church named Tim and Patty, and um, they had found love late in life with each other, married, and... Um, almost to the day of one month after their marriage, he was diagnosed with cancer. And we welcomed them into our, our life group, and our life group surrounded them through Tim's treatment and everything. Um, and then uh, he fell ill, fell further ill in December of that year. And on Christmas morning at 4 o'clock in the morning, we received a phone call. And... It was, it was Patty, and she had said Tim had passed in the hospital. And, you know, our first inclination was we want to be there, and she had called us because we were her life group leaders, and, and that's exactly who she should have called. And, and, and our first inclination was we need to go up there right away, and, and then we looked at each other. It's Christmas morning, and we woke, our, we woke our children up, and we told them, and, you know, we figured we'd get the, well, when are we going to do presents type of thing, and instead they said, you have to go now. And to be able to walk with Patty through that time, um, go up to the hospital early in the morning, pray over her, pray over Tim, 
knowing that he was walking with Jesus, so sharing in that joy and knowing that he was no longer um, ravaged by, by cancer. Mm. Um, and then to see our, our life group surround Patty as, as a widow and provide meals, provide help as she transitioned um, to be, some of us were pallbearers at her husband's funeral, at Tim's funeral, and, and just to be able to experience that with them um, and, and see the joy in that. And so, you know, when we talk about life in community, life with each other, it's during the good days, it's during the bad days, it's during those times when it may be the most inopportune time to be involved in someone's life, but it's when God calls you to be involved in their lives. Mm. Not absent from pain, not absent from grief, and yet I hear you describing still joy in the midst of that pain that you observed and that you got to experience as well. What, what encouragement might you have for us as we, as we start this year, wherever we find ourselves in this spiritual journey? Join a life group. <laughs> Just do it. <laughs> if, uh, if you've been thinking about it for a while or it's new to you, um, now's the time. Uh, we have like 17 groups, and there's always more forming, and uh, we'd love for you to, to join in that um, building community together and uh, spurring one another on, encouragement. Uh, life's hard, and uh, we're built for community. So um, you can sign up on the website. That's a great place to go under the Life Group tab. Um, so I hope, I hope you do it. Uh, thank you, Jill. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, so where James starts, um, as he begins his letter, he begins with a command, this command to be happy in Jesus. Here's where he starts. He says, count it all joy, my brothers. Count it all joy. And, and don't get stuck as we press into this. Some might go, well, there's a difference between joy and happiness. Well, can you still have grief and pain and sadness in the midst of those circumstances? Here's what some other biblical writers share about this idea of joy in Jesus. Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 5. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exalt in you. Psalm 1611 says this, you make known to me the path of life in your presence is half, half joy, fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He continues in Psalm 43, then I will go to the altar of God to my exceeding joy and I will praise you with the lyre, oh God, my God, or occasionally acoustic guitar. Psalm 37, four, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, namely more of himself. Here's how Paul says it in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord. What's rejoice feel like? When you hear the word rejoice and exceeding joy and delight, what's that feeling and emotion that comes to your mind? Happiness. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. And then again, here he goes one more time. I think one more from Paul. Is that right? 
This is why we print out the slides as well. Was that it? That these biblical authors are giving us this picture of what it means to pursue our joy in Jesus. And yet that's not always our experience. These words from James are hard, right? Because we look at that and we go, that's not always our experience. And so I was talking to my father-in-law recently and, and, and we were talking about, well, why is that the case? What, what are the reasons we don't often pursue our joy in Jesus? Here are a few reasons that we, we work through that it's just a generally a bad theology, that we have an incorrect view that God is glorified by our suppressed desires for joy, that we can't actually pursue joy. And, and in order to glorify God, we just got to suck it up and do it, right? We just got to go, ah, I just got to grin and bear it. Sometimes like I do for my wife, you're like, well, it's just my experience. There's no joy to be had. I just got to shove these emotions. And then we ask, is it really honoring to someone to not actually experience joy in the act? Just because the behavior looks good on the outside, Jesus has a lot to say about the heart being in a place. It's a bad theology. Sometimes the reason we don't pursue joy, a defense mechanism that we're afraid to hope for joy because of the disappointment of the past. If you look at my life, David, there's just disappointment after disappointment. How can I hope for joy? And so the reason we don't pursue joy in Jesus is just we look at some past experiences and we're just afraid of the disappointment that we've already experienced will continue. Uh, another reason, and you've heard this one before, we're just too easily pleased. You know when you scroll through Instagram or Facebook, it's revealing something. You ever check your Instagram feed and see what things pop up? Your scrolling reveals something about you. It's telling you the things you tend to find most interesting. And sometimes what you see on your scroll and what pops up isn't always the most encouraging to my soul. We are too easily pleased. We settle for minimal joy experienced and immediate sensual desires being met. And this quote ought to be familiar around here. It comes from a book called The Way to Glory, a compilation of sermons C.S. Lewis put together. If there lurks in the most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblemishing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Why don't we pursue joy? Because there are so many other things competing for our affection. You guys know there's a football game on this afternoon? And is it illegitimate? Man, no. But to what degree is my heart invested in the success of the Minnesota Vikings, the greatest team in the <laughs> NFC North? Another reason that we probably don't pursue our joy, not strong enough faith. We don't believe God can and will deliver. And we don't beat ourselves up, right? This, this isn't an indictment that, oh man, I just gotta pray it and will it to existence, but rather man, I'm not where I want to be. And I don't want to pursue joy because I just look at my life and, and, 
And I, I'm just not believing and confident that God can and will deliver from whatever circumstance I find myself in. And then I think an oversimplified view where we look at one side and say, well, good circumstances equal happiness or joy. And then bad circumstances, well, that's pain. And we have this, this dichotomy that exists as an unfounded view. Instead, you guys ever seen the movie Inside Out by Pixar? I think, I think shares a profound view on the way God designed life to work. That these emotions are actually happening simultaneously. And then in our heart, there are a variety of emotions that are getting experienced. I was experiencing about 10 of them around 7.14 this morning while my kids were trying to get ready, right? There were a few emotions that I was expressing. And then just about a week ago, there was a man in our life, Dave Brew, that passed away and met Jesus. Is there incredible happiness and confidence of where he is right now with Jesus? And does that bring delight and happiness? And yet simultaneously, is there pain and grief? Yes. And so we're just in this process. Why don't we pursue more joy? Man, sometimes we have this oversimplified view. But James continues. He says, you're commanded to find your happiness in Jesus. As a pastor, I just want you to be happier tomorrow than you are today. And an increased sense that Jesus brings that delight for our lives. And then James adds another element to that scattered church. He says, we are commanded to be happy when? You got some challenging things happening in life right now? You could probably count on multiple hands, things that are going on in your world. We are commanded to be happy in the midst of challenging circumstances. This is what he says in the text. Count it all joy, my brothers. When? Is there, is there any question if these things are going to happen to our life? I, I hope, it, you know, if, if you're not experiencing a challenge right now, I am thankful for you. I would happily share mine with you. When you meet trials. What's a trial? What does James mean when he says, count it all joy when you experience trials? There was a guy back in California with this definition, and it's the distance. His name was Dan Jones, one of the, one of the life group leaders uh, and elders back at the church I, were, I served at in California. This gap that exists between our actual state and our desired state. This past week, I had an 80% probability of winning our fantasy football week one. 80%! I was up by like 20-something points. I lost by 0.8. Stinking fantasy football. My actual state, I was like, man, I'm, I'm going to win. And then I lost by 0.8. Desired state, I would have much preferred to win week one. I just imagine there's a variety of things that are confronting our lives, both personally, maybe relationally. The desire for a spouse or a restoration of a relationship or in the workplace, there's just a tension over different issues that you're being confronted by and you're trying to sort them out. There's national conversations taking place. 
There is suffering we are experiencing in this life. James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience this gap of various trials. Because you actually believe Jesus is present with you in the actual state. So James says, we're commanded to be happy in Jesus. And then, second, I think that's the next slide. Man, I'd like to believe I prepped these slides. You guys, you guys believe this? <laughs> it might feel like I'm just talking. Ideally, if you showed up the first or second, the illustrations are identical. Except when I use a plumber's wrench instead of a mechanic's wrench. That, that's an area of growth. We're commanded to be happy. And then commanded to be happy in the midst of difficult times. James now presses us more of why that reality is true for our life. That we are commanded to be happy in the midst of difficult times because why? It's a diagnostic test of where we're at in this journey. It actually strengthens and causes endurance in our faith. Here's what he says. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. James, the brother of Jesus, who now considers himself a servant to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Stephen has been martyred and all these people scatter over the known world. And he says right out of the gate, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know, for you know, for you know. Is it because you, you feel that? says, no, you know. Well, what do we know to be true about the experiences of our life? We know that the testings of our faith, we know that these challenging circumstances confronting our life. I just imagine a mechanic working on one of the bolts in my 2009 CRV or the pipe underneath my sink, one of the two that's corroded and rusty, and you're trying to crank that bolt. How's that bolt feel? probably not all that good. You ever watch like a guy just start banging away at the thing, trying to just knock off the rust? You ever feel like that in your life? For you know that the testing of your faith, that these trials are actually a diagnostic tool that God is using in your life to produce something. That these testings, these trials actually have purpose and James says to the scattered church, it's to produce steadfastness in your life. It's intended to produce endurance. So what's that look like? Here's four ideas of what steadfastness might be challenged by. Okay, we'll start here. Thank you. Good call. Thank you, Tim. Keeping me on track. Because there's a flow. You feel it? He says, for you know, the testing produces something. That thinking creates and you, you see and you observe these feelings and then it produces an action. What is the diagnostic feeling that James has given us that, that is revealed during those tests? He says, you know that these testings produce steadfastness. What's that diagnostic word? Man, it's a tough word. What's that diagnostic word that James says is revealed? It says joy. That we get to see and demonstrate our faith as we experience joy in the midst of pain. So what would that look like in that ongoing journey? Sometimes we may assume we are steadfast people 
But when we look at the joy we're experiencing in the midst of challenges, it might lead us to actually see that we have a presumptuous assumption that we are steadfast people. Instead, James is calling us to more, to see and experience more joy. Rather than just assume I'm steadfast, I get to measure the degree of that steadfastness against the joy I'm experiencing in the midst of the trial. And then steadfastness continues to press us to have this eternal perspective. God is, the, is in the ongoing process of transforming us, which will be short, no, lifelong. And I love this. This is, this is stemming from a quote from something called the Apprentice Prayer by a, by a parachurch ministry called Soul Shepherds that we actually are entering into graduate classes on transformation happening in the classroom of suffering. That there is a test taking place and here's what the prayer says. Lord Jesus, you're my teacher. I seek to live as your apprentice in all that I do today. My life is your school for teaching me. My life, my Monday to Saturday, my life is your school for teaching me. I relinquish my agenda for this day and I submit myself to you and your kingdom purposes in all situations. I abandon outcomes to you, praying your will, your way, your time. Don't hear me say we become passive. But we quickly reveal to what degree we love to exercise control over a situation. Do we believe God is actually at work? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you experience trials of various kinds because you know God's at work in this stuff in all situations. Not becoming passive, but do I abandon outcomes? I stop making people projects, right? I instead meet them where they are with how God has brought them to me. And I wanna say and pray and watch that God is at work in their lives, no longer as projects, and the outcomes that I might want and the timing I might want. But instead, I receive them in the way they've been given. And then, how? How's that work? Produce steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. How? How, how might we actually see trials produce this endurance in this joy-filled journey? How might that happen? I want to give you a framework. Three ideas that might help you evaluate where we might find ourselves. Do we actually see trials helping us identify, reveal, and raise to the surface what we truly love, value, and find happiness in? Do trials actually reveal a lot about my life? In that sibling relationship that, man, I would just love to have that thing figured out. Is it actually revealing something about my desire for control over a certain relationship? And then trials help me appraise how much value and happiness I find in something. When something's taken away from me, whether that be health, potentially vocation, to what degree is there still joy in the midst of the pain? Because Jesus is present with me. James is giving us a diagnostic tool and believing that our life is God's school <laughs> and he's working on us and he's working in things in your life. 
to draw him back, draw us back to himself as the ultimate source of joy. So here's my hope. This isn't just a passive thing that happens to us, but rather it's a cooperative participation. You know, uh, recently I've been told I use the word we a lot. Hey, we're going to do this. Casey finally called me out on it recently. She goes, David, I think what you mean by we do this is that I do this. And I went, that's probably not what I intend. It's a cooperative effort. Cooperative participation with rather than enduring while fighting against. And so I want you guys to pray this, this week and maybe in the subsequent weeks. What if that biggest thing in your world is right now, the thing you'll wake up and go to sleep thinking about? Potentially a relationship, future, the uncertainty, some challenges getting played out in our national landscape. God, use my circumstance and help me gain your perspective. And to see the circumstance of my life through your eyes. God, use my circumstance. Because up until this point, God in his infinite wisdom has chosen not to remove it from your life. You believe that? He's chosen not to remove it from your life. We're asking, God, we believe that. Use my circumstance and help me gain your perspective and to see the circumstance of my life through your eyes. Pray with me. God, you are so good. We want to see your hand at work. And we want to experience greater joy in the midst of that. We, with James, want to count it all joy when we experience these trials, believing you are at work in the school of our life and that you are drawing us closer to yourself. May we at Hillcrest embody what it means to be so filled up with your spirit that we can't help but overflow that into the lives you have planted us in. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen.